It's Luke. Happy New Year. How are we feeling so far? Too soon to tell? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Hope you at least got some time over the holidays to rest and recover, or perhaps that you're getting some time now to rest and recover from the holidays. Speaking for myself, my holidays were pretty good, pretty restful. Navigating family stuff in the era of COVID isn't exactly easy, but you know, we made it work. Got some good fam time. Not too bad at all. Hope you found yourself feeling safe, loved, rested at some point in the last month or so, even if not for the whole thing. Probably the biggest new personal news for me uh, actually came this morning when I woke up to the contact tracing app that I downloaded a year ago and thought might be broken because I haven't heard a peep from it until now telling me I've been exposed to COVID. So I'm not sick. I feel pretty good, actually. I feel better than I would expect my soon-to-be 41-year-old body to feel. So I've either dodged a bullet and I did not get COVID at all, despite the exposure and the looming menace of Omicron, or maybe I'm an asymptomatic carrier. Who knows? Either way, I'm going to take a couple tests and keep doing what I've been doing for the better part of two years now, which is leaving my house uh, sparingly. We'll do another episode of Baumgarten's Anatomy once I get the test results. Big news at Range HQ. We will soon have a new team member. Her name is Valerie Ozier. The French might pronounce that Ozier, but uh, this is America, damn it. She's a journalist who spent the last few years at the Long Beach Post helping them grow their audience and membership, and that is exactly what she'll be doing here at Range. We could not be more excited to have her. So more on that soon. Man, what else is going on here? We just had about a foot of snow dump at our house, or at my house. I don't know how much you got, but a lot of snow, and now it's uh, melting as quickly as it came. So it sort of feels like a metaphor for our news cycle. The things that seem to be of such a <laughs> tremendous, overwhelming importance one minute are all but forgotten the next. This week, though, on the interview, we're going to take the long view, both backward and forward. We're talking about the state legislature. I'm just a bill. The 2022 state legislative session for Washington begins on Monday, just a couple days, January 10th. And a few weeks ago, we spoke with Senate Majority Leader Andy Billig, who represents Spokane, but who's also the head Democrat in the Senate, about what he thinks will be the priorities for that session. We also did a postmortem on what was, by all accounts, a barn burner of a session in 2021. And while it's a little early to judge things like police reform, we did try to do some reflection on how it's gone to this point. When I said taking the long view, like these laws that get passed last forever. You'll hear us talk about a condo act that was first passed in the 90s and is still the subject of a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism, and it's never too early really to start suggesting revisions to things even when they've, you know, recently been passed. So we're mostly going to be looking at issues, but we're also going to talk a little bit about structure because I think we're all whether we like it or not, or whether we want to be or not, pretty familiar with the way our national legislature works. And there's a lot of similarities with our state legislature, but there are also some differences. So we're going to get into that. One of the key differences is that this is a part-time citizen legislature. So it's not anybody's full-time job. And actually, these sessions, every two years, the sessions are only 60 days long. So the decisions that are going to be made in the next 60 days might affect us for the rest of our lives and our children's lives. It's vital to get this stuff right and is done on a pretty compressed timeline. So we're going to talk about all of that. And as a result, this episode's already a beefy boy. 
It's a uh, full-on chuck roast of content. Clocks in at about an hour and 10 minutes, just the interview. Enough to, <laughs> enough to feed the whole family. Maybe have leftovers. So feel free to step away from the table. Make it into a sandwich tomorrow. And because it's a whole damn meal, there's really no need for me to keep jawing here. Uh, this has been enough of an amuse-bouche. Without further ado, Senate Majority Leader Andy Billig, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Senate Majority Leader Andy Billig, thanks for coming on Range, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. We have so much to talk about that I think I'm going to just kind of put us on a timer. We've talked to Brennan, who's recording us today. But in the interest of like helping people understand what y'all do over there, I had a couple quick questions about structure and composition of the state legislature in general, but then, you know, the Senate specifically. So right now we have a trifecta, meaning Democrats control the governor's mansion and both the House and the Senate. And in the Senate, y'all are looked like one seat shy of a 60% supermajority, but it also seems like stuff is harder to pass in the Senate than in the House. So clearly raw numbers aren't giving the full dynamic or the telling the whole story. So yeah, what are the dynamics like in the Senate? Well, the Senate is typically a little bit more independent. And I think that was by design, the four-year terms versus the two-year terms in the House. Oftentimes the um, senators have um, been in the legislature a little bit longer because they come from the House when a Senate seat has opened. Uh, so that gives them a little bit more confidence and perspective and experience. So the sort of culture of the Senate is to be a little bit more independent, whereas in the House, the caucuses are a little bit more of a pack. Gotcha. And it's still a team sport, but it is definitely a few more independent-minded senators on any particular issue. It may be different senators. I've heard from lawmakers, but then also folks like Jeff Ketchell in public health saying that sometimes legislators in really progressive places maybe don't see the need for some of the reforms that have theoretically really benefit us in, in a place like Spokane. Like in the last session, it seemed like municipal broadband took a lot of effort to get across when it seems like that would be a no brainer, you know, west of the Cascades. But then the structural public health changes portion, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, did as well. And one thing I heard, and it really was kind of a rumor, so correct me if it's not true, was that there were a number of places with pretty progressive counties and pretty progressive cities, just places that were uniformly progressive, that had solid health boards and said, don't screw with our health boards. So was, was that a dynamic that you see? Uh I don't think people would say, don't screw with our health boards, but maybe they just didn't see sort of, is this really a problem? And I've seen that on some land use issues um, where, there, where there's one issue in particular where there's this big vesting loophole on the Growth Management Act. Actually, Kitty Klitsky was on our show way back in the beginning of the range talking about this exact thing. So glad, yes, glad you're bringing that exactly. up. Exactly. So um, yeah, Kitty probably taught me everything I know about this issue, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's a problem in Spokane. And um, it's a big loophole that our county has unfortunately taken advantage of. But yeah, there are people who have progressive county councils or county commissions who just, it just doesn't really resonate with them that this could actually be a problem. And I think that's what we saw in some of the public health stuff. 
how does that dynamic play out really? It's, you know, it, something like closing the urban growth boundary loophole, which I'll direct people back to a previous episode. We don't have to get into here because we don't have a ton of time, but like, what's the case you're making to those colleagues of yours that are like, Hey, we're all, it, it is a team sport. This is something we need over in, in Spokane County, even whether or not you need it in Snohomish or King. That's the argument that we make. And, and it generally is well received because, um, you know, especially if it's something that's not going to be particularly detrimental to their area, we all understand that while we represent a specific district and 148,000 specific people, that we also have an obligation to do what's best throughout the whole state. Right. And sometimes those things are intention, but a lot of times it doesn't really have an impact on me. And so I can kind of help that other part of the state. And you know, that senator from the West Side who wants my vote on expanding the CQ Cumber Commission from seven members to nine members doesn't really hurt Spokane. <laughs> they got my support on that one. Yeah, it's been years since I've had a good CQ Cumber, actually, now that I think about it. So just, again, trying to just get a broad sense for people before we dive into specific topics, like, was the state legislature modeled on the national legislature? We use the same terminology, House and Senate. In what ways is it similar and in what ways is it like qualitatively importantly different? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Something I thought about a lot. It is generally structurally similar, although there are some differences. I mean, the biggest one is just scale. And I, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. I went to Georgetown University, was a government major, and saw up close the federal government, not really from the inside, but but pretty up close. When I first went to Olympia, long before I was elected, and I was doing some some advocacy, and you just go in and meet with a legislator, and they say, yeah, I think we can pass that bill, but we need you to, if you can get this person and that person, then come back and talk to me. And you get this person, that person, you go back and say, yeah, we got them on board. And they go, okay, yeah, okay, we'll get that done. And you know, a couple of weeks later, it gets done. Now, it's not always that easy, but the idea that you could just go talk to the actual decision makers as a constituent, and then see through the process and really witness it and help it, I think that sort of that scale and that accessibility is really fundamentally different. Interesting. So who's our Mitch McConnell? I'm just kidding. You, know, you, you can tell me that off mic. Tell me that off mic. It's one of my favorite uh, Stephen Colbert interview questions. Who's the worst person you work with? <laughs> <laughs> so the legislature always begins on the second Monday in January. And how long does it last each year? So we operate on a two-year cycle with the first year of the cycle, which is always the odd year after a general election. So that's okay. 2021 session, which we had earlier this year, is the long session. And that's 105 days. And we typically do the two-year budgets uh, in that session. Then the second year of the biennium is a 60 day short session. Okay. So you're in by mid-January and you're out by mid-March. Correct. Next year specifically. Yeah. So obviously last year was a unique year and we're going into two years of unique years now. So a full, we're going to have a full at least 24 months of unique years. It feels like obviously that longer session would have helped you get done some of the stuff you really needed to get done around COVID and around, and I'm sure actually a police accountability too, now that I'm thinking about it. And so are you worried that you're going to have time to pack it all in, in 60 days this year? Well, it always seems daunting to go into 60 days, but we have these this very structured calendar that keeps us on track. Okay. And it's this it's called the cutoff calendar. And it basically is if a bill hasn't gotten past this point, say out of committee by this day, it's just dead. And that's how we funnel down the thousands of bills that get introduced to the 
few hundred that pass, but it also keeps us on on track to get done on time. That strikes me as something that's qualitatively different than the Congress as well. That there's, you know, as we've seen with the Build Back Better bill and stuff, that can last forever until Joe Manchin decides to say yes or it dies completely. The the part-time legislature really gives it a different dynamic. Also, the fact that everybody's a citizen legislator. People have other jobs. That's a real difference that shows up in a lot of different ways in in the legislature compared to Congress. I knew you guys were part time, but now that I I don't think I realized how compressed the schedules were. So is the ask basically that like you you got your job for the other ten months of the year, but it's you're focused on the legislature in. January through March, or how does it work? Yeah. I mean, when we're in session, it's really intense. So it's hard to do anything else. It's 7.30 in the morning till, you know, eight at night or whenever of meetings pretty much nonstop or floor sessions or committees. The rest of the year, there's definitely legislative work to, to do, but there's a lot more flexibility. And there's a whole range of some legislators that basically go full-time year-round on legislative work and some that sort of check out the rest of the time. And where do you land on that personally? I would say for legislators, I'm about average. I mean, the rest of the year, I probably work, um, you know, 50 to, I don't know, 70% of my time on legislative work since I, especially since I've become the majority leader. Um, That's a much heavier load than being a a rank and file member. Okay. So let's get into the issues. And I thought we could start with a softball just to ease us in. Nothing controversial, pretty low stakes. What did y'all get done last session um, and what still needs doing on on the health side of the ball with COVID? You know, the first thing that we did was even before session because the pandemic actually started. I remember I was driving home from Olympia following the 2020 session. So it was March 13th. It was the day after the session. Wow. Yeah. And I got a call from the governor's office giving me a heads up that the governor was going to close all the schools the next day. That's incredible. I didn't think about that timeline. Yeah. And so we got done right at, I mean, like, you know, COVID was sort of a thing that last week of session in 2020. And then everything within, you know, a week or 10 days, it just, everything got shut down. So that interim, we still, we actually did a lot of work as the legislature, even though we weren't in session and helping to allocate a lot of federal funds that were coming in. But once session started, we just kind of put that on turbo blast and um, got sent out assistance for rental assistance, for public health, um, for small business grants, and really across the board. And I think it was $2 billion of assistance that we did early on. Wow. Um, We also had a lot of work to do for unemployment benefits and to shore up the unemployment fund, which was uh, stressed as, as you would imagine. How much of the the unemployment thing was the state? Because I know there was a bunch of federal grants or federal money that flowed into that. But how much did y'all do with the state to sort of shore it up even further? Well, the biggest thing is that we had one of the healthiest unemployment funds in the country when we started. It's a combination. The federal government's a big partner in that. But we needed to help. And the other thing that we needed to do was to adjust how, if you think about this, it's like this bucket that gets filled by Um, the unemployment rates, the unemployment tax that everybody pays in. But then when that bucket level goes down, the rates go up to refill the bucket faster. And so what was going to happen is all of these businesses, particularly the ones that were hardest hit, who had the most people to lay off, were going to get hit with like 800% rate increases on unemployment. So what we we were able to come in, Senator Karen Kaiser from... um, King County was a real leader on this, basically came up with a bill to change how 
the rates uh, were set because there was an automatic rate setting and we sort of overrode that. So it was a big piece of it, in addition to making sure that the benefits got out. And the agency, ESD, they, they were overwhelmed and it was really frustrating. It was one of our things as, as legislative office and doing constituent support that was really challenging for them. And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we also had a Nigerian prince scam situation. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't yeah. want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> With all that done, and I, and I think, you know, I think personal bankruptcies were down in the state. Business bankruptcies were among the lowest in the nation. So it seems like the the sort of um, the triage work like stopped the bleeding really, really well compared to other states. How are you guys thinking about what you're going to do in the next session to to kind of keep that going or just help people recover more fully? Well, and I appreciate you saying that because I'm so proud of our state. I and mean, we're one of the uh, healthiest, safest states through the pandemic and one of the most economically resilient it's really that everybody came together uh, to help make that a reality. You know, as we go forward, I mean, we're not going to be in session still for another two months. So in COVID time, that's that's like a, a century. And so a lot can change. Um, but we're going to make sure, you know, kind of all of the policy areas that we've been monitoring that really were stressed or cracked through this pandemic, um, we're going to just make sure that they have the support. So again, so it's small business support. It's um, healthcare access, it's public health, childcare was a big one that is so stressed and continues to be stressed, yeah, right. a big drag on our economy because it's one of the reasons that the labor force is, is, is not coming back as strongly as we needed to. And then and rental assistance, housing, all of that. So just to make sure and be nimble to say, we want a robust recovery that works for everyone. And as of January 2022, this is where the help that's needed. The good news is I think we're going to have the resources available to continue to help nurse the recovery. Resources from the federal government, but it also seems like, especially compared to 2009, tax revenues at the state level didn't take the hit that they did back then. Yeah. I mean, right after the pandemic started, those those first few months, we got a revenue projection that showed that we might be down as much as $9 billion. Oh my God. And that's out of like a $50 billion budget at that time. I mean, that's catastrophic. That's closing universities and closing prisons and you know, changing state government uh, as we know it. And in fact, if you remember, there were a lot of people at Seattle time. I mean, there, there were all these people were calling for us to immediately have a special session to cut everything to try to minimize. We pushed back, the Senate Democrats in particular pushed back on that and said, we need to take a deep breath. You know, we don't want to cut right when people are hurting so much. It's the worst time to cut. And that was one of the lessons from the recession, from, from the 09 recession, is that cuts came right when people needed government to help them. And this, the lesson we learned and that we tried to do better this time is to say, right when people need help is right when government is going to come forward and try to, to be that robust safety net so that we can have that re resilience and have a robust recovery. So you passed a bunch of big healthcare stuff. The public health thing structurally changed the way that boards are composed. You also infused a bunch of money into the public health system. And then you're, I think, adding another jump in the, in the budget for public health funding either this year or next biennium. How's that going to work? And then are you adding anything to that in the session, do you think? Or is that going to just kind of roll out as it rolls out? Yeah. So foundational public health, which is just sort of the unattached general money that we're sending out to the public health di districts, that uh, took a, a, a big increase. 
And I believe that you're right, that there is another increase that's scheduled. In terms of if there's more, we're really going to listen to the feedback. And a lot of what we do, and this, you know, the purpose of the hearings that we have and um, the meetings that I'm doing all day <laughs> these days <laughs> of checking in with constituents and with stakeholders and people and public health people or you know whatever advocates there are in, in other areas to say, what is the situation on the ground? What are you requesting? What do you need to help the people of Spokane or the people of the state? And so I think it's too early to know for sure. All right, let's go into another area, another softball. I mean, it's just going to, I feel like I'm just going to be lobbing you stuff. <laughs> well, we didn't really do anything controversial. Yeah, no, so. not at all. Uh, police, police accountability. We've talked about the legislation at decent length here. We had Anoka Harada, the ACLU on previously. There was a ton of pushback right around July when when the changes took effect around police accountability. I haven't heard much since. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much of that is just the news cycle moving on and how much of that is law enforcement officers and, and police unions making a big stink at the beginning to draw as much attention to it as possible and then waiting to see. What are you seeing so far? Does it seem like the reforms are working? Are you hearing from constituents that crime is rising as a result of it or or what what's going on so far? There definitely has been a lull in the activity and the sort of um, chatter about the, about, it, right? about the laws. Overall, the input that we've gotten to our office has been much more positive than it's been negative. Um, from the media coverage, you, it doesn't always look that way right. because I think there have been some higher profile press conferences and statements from law enforcement that have gotten uh, a lot of attention. I do think it's dying down because a lot of the changes are getting internalized and getting and, and law enforcement and the public are getting used to them. Um, one of the things I would have done differently, we had 12 bills, but three really big bills that all got implemented at exactly the same time. If right. I had to do it over again, I think I would have spaced them out at, you know, maybe six month intervals. Cause you know, Oh, right. So you, you pass them all at the same time, but you sort of space them out. You implement them at, at staggered. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Cause I think for, for, you know, most of these reforms you're hearing about a few, most of them are what most law enforcement think are a good idea and are okay with, even though they might want to do it a little bit differently. But it's just a lot of change all at once. And I really understand the concern from law enforcement that, I, boy, you hit us with a lot all at once. So that part of it makes sense. And we maybe should have spread it out a little bit. And then there's some things that we do need to change. Like there's a couple of mistakes we made. And there are a couple areas that I don't I think are clear when I read the law, but that law enforcement has said, eh, we wish you could make it more clear so we don't feel like we're liable when we do X, Y, or Z. Gotcha. One of the big ones is the ITA, the involuntary treatment. Um, somebody's having a mental health emergency. The police, some police are saying they can't detain and transport somebody in that situation. We think the law is clear, but we're going to come back and clarify that one. That's one I think law enforcement and the legislators all agree on. Anything else? Uh, yeah, there was, we inadvertently banned the beanbag, less lethal rounds, and we'll fix that. Um, and I think there's three or four others sort of in that realm. So these are just minor tweaks then, nothing like repealing anything or sub, like massively changing stuff. I think there may be some discussion on a few items, but um, most of the ones, but it, that actually will clear up. I mean, the mental health trans detain and transport, that's a big one. Like that's one that's right. causing quite a bit of concern uh, for police and for mental health providers as well. Really? Okay. Then on the other side of the ball, people who are advocating for reform, what are you hearing from them that they want you to go further next session or or what, what wasn't enough for them? 
Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is like there were a number of bills that didn't pass because they didn't have the support or it just seemed like too much all at once. But I should have stepped back and just said, you know, the big picture is that we wanted to build trust between police and the community. We want to increase public safety. We want it to be safe for everyone, safe for the police officers, safe for the public, safe for bystanders, safe for everybody in our community. And that that's the goal of these bills and particularly related to use, use of force, which is about try not to use force, like make that right. the last option. And then if you have to use force, use the least force that you possibly can. And by the way, that general principle is a general principle that most police departments subscribe to anyway, but now it's mandated yeah. and it's you know, very specific of what they have to do, which is, you know, I understand is a hard thing to adjust to. It does strike me though, that maybe cuts against the argument that like these laws aren't clear enough. We don't really know what we can do because, you know, I think the police chief Meidel, and I can't remember if Ozzy spoke, talked about this specifically. It's like, you're there to enforce the law when the, the law changes. Maybe you want to just give it a time, a chance to see how it works out. There was a lot of prognostication that happened, but also if it's really, really clear, if the assertion is that this is already internal police procedure, then codifying it into law shouldn't be a problem, should it? No, but it, I mean, to be fair, it, it, it was more specific and it does hold them to very specific things that they need to do. For instance, I think they want, generally police would go to a situation and try to you know, de-escalate first, but now they actually have to go through a de-escalation sort of checklist. It takes a lot longer. It's one of the reasons people talk about they're conflating the police reform and defund the police. No, if you're really going to do de-escalation, you might actually need more police officers because it takes a lot longer. It's one of the pushbacks I have when police kind of have said, the problem is we need to use force because it takes so long if we're going to wait and wait and wait to try to talk somebody out of a situation. And then to me, I think, so we're using force for efficiency. Right. Not for safety. Yeah. And so, and I get it because they're under stress because they've got to get to the next call. But if we could really set this up right and they had the proper resources, then they could really buy in to this de-escalation and not be worried about getting to the next call. That's better for everybody. So we've yeah, we've talked a little bit about the reforms. I feel like what might sort of get tweaked about what you passed last time. Is there anything new on the horizon that you see coming from, you know, more from the reform side? I don't, I think it's going to be mostly clarification and cleanup. There was one bill about the qualifications of police officers uh, that had some controversial uh, items in it. But one part of that that I thought was really interesting was when you're evaluating police officers for a job is to give um, additional points. So they do it in a, in a, point system to sort of simplify it, but to give some points for service in the Peace Corps or for speaking another language mm -hmm. and to try to look a little bit more broadly of what kind of qualifications we want for peace officers in our state. Gotcha. Yeah. Especially as our, our region gets more diverse, it's getting, it can't, it, it would be hard for it to be less diverse. So any sort of the migration that we have that's coming in, well, we know we get, we're getting refugees from Afghanistan. We're getting refugees from all over the country. World Relief's a really cool thing in our community. But then people are just moving here. We're all of a sudden a really hot place to live. That's going to be another softball I talk to you about in a second. So it's like we're going to have a more diverse community. Shouldn't our police force represent the diversity that's inside the community? Exactly. I, I, I absolutely agree. And that bill that we're considering would help with that. Can I mention one other thing on the police accountability? Yeah, go for it. So this is really interesting when we think about sort of conservative, progressive 
uh, mindset. One of the areas of the police reform bills that has gotten some attention is the change from the standard of reasonable suspicion to stop somebody and use force right. to uh, using the probable cause standard, which is a higher standard. Right. But we've used the probable, probable cause standard always for uh, being the government being able to enter your home. Right, of course. So it's not some crazy standard, first of all. And we who love freedom and liberty have especially, decided- I would say especially people who love freedom and liberty. Yes, want that limit on government intrusion into your home. And what we've said with this bill, with these bills is we want to extend that same protection of your freedom and to give a pause to the government ability to impede that freedom to the same standard that we've had forever with your home. And when you think about it that way, it doesn't seem like such a crazy controversial plan. Right. Well, it's like if we, and I would say like, especially, you know, the castle doctrine, conservatives really love a person's home is their castle. So why wouldn't a person's body also be a castle? Or, if their, we're gonna, or their car. Or their or car. Their space as they're walking down the street. Right. Yeah. It seems, that seems pretty common sense to me, you know, and, and even a further extension of civil liberties in like the libertarian conservative sense. Exactly. Exactly. And these bills have not gotten support from the libertarians. But when you think about that standard change, that should be celebrated by the civil libertarians. Right. Yeah. They, they like that we legalize marijuana. They, this would be a, a natural thing to do as well. I mentioned it. I already teed it up. Housing. In, and, I, and kind of in our area specifically, because I know like there's such tremendous diversity in all aspects of that word in our state. I think it's, it comes into play with the, the growth boundary stuff. Really, really rural places might have different needs than urban King County does. Despite that, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what role the state needs to play, if any, maybe you don't think there is one, to help Spokane County develop the housing mix that it needs to, to continue growing and still being affordable for the people that have lived here forever. I, I've, you know, lifelong resident, have deep family roots here. I've also worked in, you know, arts organizing where the whole point was keeping people here and then getting people to move here. Like that was a very important, not secondary goal. It was like a missional goal or it is a missional goal to that aspect of my life. Now that it's actually happening though, it's creating really, really big problems. So what do you think the legislature can do to help solve them? It's a big question. And there's a, there's a lot of pieces to the answer. So I'll try to just highlight a few. One is to provide housing assistance, assistance for actual construction of multifamily housing. We do that through the housing trust fund in the capital budget, which we just did a record amount of $200 million in the housing trust fund. And that goes to affordable housing projects. Um, and so that helps to create density and it's obviously low income housing or mixed housing. The second thing we can do is uh, tax incentives. And so we've done that through the multifamily tax incentive, which just got renewed with some additional flexibility. And that, when I talk to developers uh, who are doing apartments and mixed use particularly, um, they say that that is a really useful uh, tool. Then another area we can work on is zoning. And this is really, zoning's always been sort of a really uh, key local decision-making process. Right. And so this is a real tension in the legislature in the state, across the state, 
should the legislature come in and do what oftentimes the city council can't do because they're really close to their you know, neighborhood councils right. who don't want any changes in the zoning. So it, should it be the state that then comes in and says, look, we understand it's a tough decision for people to do on, on a city council or a county commission. So we're going to just make this decision and say, you've got to allow duplexes and triplexes and quads, or you've got to allow them within a half a mile of a transit line. That's a tension because a lot of people say, no, local control. But it's an opportunity for you to be the bad guy if a city council might want it, but doesn't maybe have the political will to do it. Or they're just hearing so much from their neighborhood councils that it's like kind of on the nimbyish side of things. Right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But a tough one to pass. So I'm not sure even we've, we've had some variations of that and it's very hard to pass because a lot of legislators also don't want to be the ones that override the, the local will. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing we can do is to look at sort of specifics. And I, I've been working on, and I don't get to do very many bills now as majority leader, but I am working on a bill that would potentially either incentivize infill housing in a downtown core like Spokane. I was going to say, where did you get that idea from? <laughs> or to de-incentivize <laughs> having surface parking lots. And we're looking, Ben Stuckert was an advocate of this. We tried. John Snyder was too, right? Yes. I think John Snyder was a big advocate yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. And and it's something people all, you know, if you talk to developers, they agree generally, unless they own parking lots. But, you know, downtown Spokane Partnership, progressives and conservatives all feel like this is something that we should unite around. I was talking with Jim Frank, who developed Kendall Yards and has done some really- Greenstone. Greenstone, some really responsible uh, developments. And I said, Jim, what would it take for you just to, take some of those parking lots and do some, you know, four stories offices or retail on the ground floor and three stories of apartments. And he goes, Oh, I'd love, you know, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that on me. He says, there's two things. One, got to figure out a way to get those parking lots at an affordable rate. And the second thing is we need more sort of livability. Like instead of having three lanes all going in the same direction, trying to get cars through as fast as possible, what about, you know, doubling the size of the sidewalk and putting a barrier in with some trees right. and some grass and a nice bike lane? That is what will help to spur housing, but more than that, to make our city even more livable. Right. And then that runs into certain other commercial developers who really, they like the idea of one ways on and off the freeway going to commercial properties or you know, to retail and stuff. So that I'm sure there, there's inter-developer tension there. So that's got to be um, part of it as well. There is. And I certainly know some of the forces against that slowing things down and more livability, but it sure feels like there's a lot more people who want green space, slow down, it does better development. Yeah, absolutely. And we're starting to get some of that livability, especially down in kind of the Brick West area or what's now... Carnegie Square, right, which was where the Rocket Bakery that I used to go for a bagel almost every morning when I was at the Inlander. And, you know, a lot of the work that we did with Terrain was in that middle ground on First, where where First Avenue Coffee is now. We would see, you know, the the vibrancy would sort of come up to basically Monroe, you know, if you're, look, if you're thinking uh, east to west. And then stuff would try to kick off. It would, like, spark, but there was no turnover. Mm -hmm. Like, there was no engine there. And then that would basically go all the way to Brown's Edition. And now, and you've got to think that part of it's because there's a bunch of buildings that could have been used for housing that are, exist. Like we're talking about, these would be renovation projects that weren't being used for that, or they were completely empty, or there was a uh, tax dodging Blu-ray DVD manufacturer <laughs> right. in one of them. You know, <laughs> it was like there was. There you was couldn't make that up. If no. you were going to write that in a novel, you couldn't make that up. 
now that's sort of beginning to grow up. So, and, and that felt like a chicken and egg problem. And again, back, you know, 10 years ago when John Snyder was pushing this stuff, a lot of the developers were like, nobody wants, nobody wants dense housing in Spokane. So we've got all these parking lots because we're just responding to the market. It seems pretty clear that the market is looking for a new signal. And I know that it's because we are on bedrock. So there's like geological problems to think about too. It's really hard to dig down in Spokane the way that you can dig down in Seattle. So you can't do like deep parking the way that you can in Seattle. Despite that, it seems like we've got a beginning to a point where there is enough economic incentive to make some really interesting housing decisions downtown. Yes. And I think part of that, which has nothing to do with Spokane, or a little bit to do with Spokane, but a big factor is that there's more demand for housing. So all of a sudden, a developer can look at this and say, well, maybe I can buy that surface parking lot and turn it into housing or remodel that just because of the housing demand across the whole West Coast. And now things just pencil out that never would have penciled out before, as well as sort of a a change in what people are looking for. That brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk about. I keep hearing, and the more stories I do on housing, the more I hear from people who are on the developer or on the realtor side of things saying that like there are some structural impediments to really developing, that we just had a building collapse in my, a condo building collapse in Miami. So we know how dangerous it can be for structurally unsound buildings, buildings that are not up to code, can't fit, you know, aren't, you know, maybe proper, weren't probably built in properly in the first place and then aren't well-maintained and then people die. It's like, it's a thing that kills people, but both our local realtors association, and it does seem like some of their critics think that the condominium act is an obstacle to building density in Spokane specifically. And I know it's undergone some reforms. I think I looked up and if I'm wrong about any of this, please correct me because I'm, I'm definitely a layman and a neophyte with all this stuff, but looks like there were reforms in 2004, 2019 so maybe we could just start with a brief history lesson, though. Like, what did the original act try to do? Why were those reforms necessary? And do you think more reforms are still necessary? Well, I'll just touch on one very specific uh, point that's been the focus recently, which is this extra level of liability protection that condos are required to have. So they need to go out and hire this. It's called an envelope consultant. So it's about like the envelope of the building right. to make sure water doesn't seep in and you get all the bad things that come with water damage. And we actually also added to your list would be a bill that we passed in 2021. Uh, it's something that Senator Patton was the prime sponsor of and he and I worked closely on. And it basically uh, gave flexibility on smaller projects. Gotcha on the envelope consultant. And for Spokane in particular, it was a problem because they all of these consultants were in Seattle. Where there's like a hundred condo projects going on at any time. Obviously that's where most of the consultants are gonna be. And the condos are also more expensive. So the problem was that you were gonna do a, a, a 12 condo, 16 condo building here in Spokane. And the envelope consultant cost $150,000. So you divide that by 12 units, it costs a fortune. Um, so what we said is for and each sm- of those units is going to probably sell for less than, a, you know, a 300 unit condo is going to sell for. So you've got less units and less cost and less, less prices here, because, you know, even if you were in Spokane and doing high end condos and those are all going to be million dollar condos, which we do have a few of those here. Well, then the 125,000 is not really that big a deal. Um, and that would be an especially big problem if 
you know, we're thinking about condos as being a great entry place for first time home buyers. If that envelope consultant is so expensive or in the, like there's also, isn't there a warranty requirement or something like that that might be expensive per unit? Then it just makes what should be maybe an affordable way for somebody to buy their first home less affordable. Exactly. That's exactly what the developer said is we want to make $250,000 condos. And so right. they, it's realistic and they, they couldn't do that with it. So anyway, we did create some flexibility. But there's another side of the argument of people that say, well, I want some consumer protection here. Absolutely. And then this is where it's interesting, like legislators are real people. We're like having this debate in caucus. So we're, <laughs> so, you know, we meet as the whole Senate and we also meet as a caucus. And in caucus, so Senate Democratic caucus, Senate Republican caucus is where you get briefed on the bills before you go vote on them. I mean, hopefully you've got some familiarity before, but it's also a time where you ask questions of the chair or the prime sponsor. And literally while we're in that meeting, we were by Zoom and one of the senators takes their laptop and holds it up to their window and it's dark. And they, she said, you know why this is dark? It's dark because there's plastic sheeting on the outside of my building because we had water seep in and oh, wow. they have to redo my entire building. And I can't even talk on these meetings a lot of the time because there's so much noise coming from the workouts. So you literally had somebody that had been impacted by right. this as one of the 49 people that are going to vote on it or to you know advocate to their colleagues. Now, her, that project was a much bigger project. It wasn't a direct one-to-one -one ratio on this bill, but right. it still was a powerful point for consumer protection. Yeah. And so- even the things that seem easy in Olympia, there's always another side. And I, as a freshman, when I first came in and you'd I'd meet with some advocate or a lobbyist or something, they'd explain their bill and, you know, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm sure I can support that. But then like an hour later, you meet with somebody from the other side and they explain it. And you're like, well, that makes a lot of sense too. I guess I need to look a little deeper at this. There's always another side. Absolutely. And it was obviously put together before you were in the legislature. And, and to the topic of Consumer protection, but not to the topic of also people's lives, like people dying, as happened in Miami. And I think you were, I might have been in elementary school, you might have been in middle school when the, the original Condo Act was passed. So I don't know if you'll have any specific insight about why it was done the way it was done back then, but why wasn't it? It was not a condo and apartment act. And apartments obviously can be just as dense as condos and often are more dense than condos. So why didn't the legislature require some? The, some of these sort of same things on apartments as it did on condos. And is that creating like unintended consequences 30 years later? So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But my my guess is was just the idea that protecting sort of everyday people who are buying into this, you know, putting their life savings, putting their, their signing a, a, a mortgage and having such so much at stake that they needed some additional protection to somebody that compared to somebody still important, they're living there, but it's on a month to month lease or an annual lease that doesn't have that capital outlay. Right. That's my guess, but I don't know. So more of a property rights thing than like a, like a physical uh, human like protection thing. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Because you're still going to have, whether it's a 20 unit condo building or 20 unit apartment building, the sort of protection of life should be the, the same. same. You'd yeah. hope anyways. Yeah. Do you think we can grow without suburbanizing the rural West and gentrifying historically low income neighborhoods? Can we do that? And how? I think we can. And I think that there are a lot of examples that we've seen. Kendall Yards being one of them. Um, I think you see in 
you know, the, in South Perry, there's been some really interesting projects, but that goes to the gentrifying point. But I think you can do it in a way that isn't all bad, that you help to bring everybody up and yeah. have everybody benefit. But it's complicated and it feels like we take one step forward and then there's um, a half a step back from some of the unintended consequences. Um, but I think in Spokane in particular, because we have so much space in our center of our city in our urban growth area that isn't developed right now that I, I think we can do it and do it in a responsible way. Are there at, at like a state level, and I don't know how much research you do on like what other states have done. I would assume that like you wouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. If there's a problem, you go looking at other legislatures. Is there, are there states that you've seen that sort of do this better than we historically have, or at least I'm, you know, cause I'm thinking about like mid-sized cities. It's like big urban centers I mean, this, this is not true of like Houston and it's not true of LA. So I don't want to say it's true of all big urban centers, but it's like there tends to be density kind of gets built in just by, and maybe this is all pre-war stuff. Maybe it's pre-suburb stuff. Like the density was sort of built in by necessity and the pricing and all that stuff was sort of more naturally built in, <clears throat> in a place like Spokane specifically, but most mid-sized cities, you know, we've got all this land around us. So obviously it was just easy to, and we were seeing this happen every day in North Idaho, where increasingly, you know, you're getting closer and closer to Sandpoint and there's no, in those valleys around the mountains, there's no undeveloped land left. Were we too sort of land rich and le and not thoughtful enough to build density? And, and are there places where we can look for powerful examples of how to either solve that problem or, or just do it differently? I, I think you said it. Ex I mean, I think you had it exactly right, is that it was just too easy and too inexpensive. I mean, this is a market driven system. And so it's less expensive to build out rather than to build up. And yeah, when I think about, and I grew up in Maryland and, you know, in, in Baltimore, and you think about the, the townhouses, just yeah. one after another, after another, and that density and also the community that that created. And right. it's, but there's so many factors, historical and geological and other that go into that. And in terms of what others, I mean, I always say in the legislature, we work on like 10,000 different issues, but we each only know like three or four in depth <laughs> because you have to, because you really totally. can yeah, only you have to specialize. Yeah, you have to yeah. specialize and you go to the conferences and learn what other states are doing. So housing is not, I mean, we all work on housing because it's so important, but housing is not one of those areas that I, for you. Yeah. Yeah. My areas are uh, K-12, education, early learning, campaign finance, voting access, and then randomly aviation biofuels. Cool. So are we going to get, uh, are we going to get like a uh, kelp powered planes? Is that what you're working on? Yeah, kelp, maybe not kelp, maybe algae, algae? but, but okay. probably municipal solid waste is what I would say oh, is the best feed stuff. Uh, I was not prepared to ask you questions about that. <laughs> so. <laughs> so one of the areas you did ask to talk about though, was investments to like sort of level the playing field around economic prosperity and opportunity. So maybe I'll just hand you the ball for a second. And like, what have you been doing in that area uh, that you wanted to chat about? Well, one of the biggest things that we passed this past session, which got some uh, attention, but sort of a little lower level attention than some of the, the more controversial things, was the working families tax credit. Right. And this is something that had been on the books forever. In fact, Lisa Brown, when she was majority leader, helped to pass this into law. But it had never been funded. It hadn't really ever been close to funded. It had been passed, and then there was the recession, and it just never came back. And this is basically just giving 
a because we have a high sales tax in Washington state and it's the most regressive tax. And by the way, we're the most regressive state. So we have the most unfair tax code of right. any state. We're fifth. Oh, I used to say we're 50th out of 50, but then somebody pointed out that Washington, D.C. was better than us. So I'm going to say we're 50 at a, 51st out of 51 states. It's one of the only things where you could have your bumper sticker be like, we want to be 40th. And, you know, that would be great. <laughs> right, like yeah. if we could be 40th, it'd be great. Anyway, when we think about how to reform that, how to make our tax code more fair, and by the way, how to help people who are struggling the most during a pandemic, just giving a credit back based on this high sales tax. And that's what the Working Families Tax Credit is. And it was so great. This has always been a Democratic priority. Yeah. And this year. Magically. Magically. I can see it, on your, I can see it in your eyes. It was like magic. The Republicans started to come on board. And we passed it almost unanimously. This thing that we couldn't even wow. <laughs> move or get close to moving. And um, it, was, it's, it was really a big step forward for tax fairness in our in our state and for helping working people throughout our state. So what is the structure of the, what does it look like? Is it, you know, based on income or how's it work? Yeah, it's based on income and size of family and the rules are still getting worked out. It's, you know, once you pass something like this, then there's a, a rulemaking process, but it'll be direct help for, for the families who, who need it most. Well, and since we don't have, and I'm not trying to get too nerdy here because yeah. uh, Brennan's going to ding us at any moment if we go too long on any one of these segments, but like, Insofar as we don't have an income tax in the state, how do we know and how can we verify what people actually made? How are you guys going to do that structurally? I'd have to go back and look at the detail, although it may be left up to the rulemaking and exactly how to do that. But we do know what people's incomes are. Like there's a Department of Revenue has access to the to the tax. Oh, reports. I guess like payroll and stuff. Yeah. So you, so there is there is a, a check um, to make sure. And then also people can show, can voluntarily show, but our right. department of revenue has a relationship. Every state department of revenue has a relationship with the IRS so that there is some interaction there. That's really fascinating. Is there a chance we're ever going to have uh, income tax in the state? Not in the near term. No, not in the near term. We did pass capital gains tax, which right. is not an income tax. So be clear about that. Yeah, right. yeah, make sure you don't edit that part out. Um, <laughs> And that is another big piece of tax fairness that we pass. So the people who are having extremely large profit event right. are going to pay 7% of their profit, not on any real estate, not on their home, right. with lots of other exceptions. They will. It's mostly on big stock and bond uh, sales where the people make a lot of money they're going to pay. And that was another big thing towards tax fairness. Plus, that was money that we used to uh, help fund the big child care subsidy bills that we passed. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Cause I didn't have a specific question for it, but let's, it would be nice to let people know what's, what's coming to them with the, the childcare credit. So I became a, a advocate on early learning and that became really probably my number one area that I work on in the legislature. Not cause I knew anything about it beforehand. I went to preschool. So that was basically my qualification. <laughs> Once I started looking at it and I thought if we invest in high quality early learning, it benefits everything else. Of course it helps kids. It helps people parents to be able to go to work, but it helps kids not just at that moment, but it helps them throughout their K-12 education. It helps them to persist in college. It, it There's a direct link between high quality early learning and lower chance that you'll be in prison. There's a direct connection to having being a higher uh, wage earner. Like they, they are, there are so many connections to high quality early learning to be, I sometimes will go around our 
our caucus. And uh, I did this, I've done this a couple of times. People don't think it's funny anymore, but, um, <laughs> and I'll say, you know, Ray, tell me what your issue that you care about is. And somebody will say, it's K-12 education. I'll say, okay, you should invest in early learning. And somebody will say, uh, it's, um, you know, the juvenile incarceration. Okay, you should invest in early learning. Yeah, healthcare outcome, you should invest in early learning. Everyone, there's a documented multiple studies that show. And then one guy who's represented the San Juan Island says, I I'm most interested in saving orca whales. But I thought about it and I thought, you know what? If we really do a good job in early learning, we're going to have more marine biologists. Right. It just only makes sense. So what we did this year was to just, we have a state program of, of high quality early learning. Um, it's called ECAP. And then we also have a child care subsidy program. What we did this year was the biggest investment we've ever done in a, as a state, almost a billion dollars, to expand the subsidies so that there's more eligibility. So families that are making more money will qualify for these programs. And then also the providers are struggling and struggling to get employees and to pay their employees because it's one of the things we know for high quality. You got to pay people well and get right. good people. Right. Um, so we increase the rate at which the providers get reimbursed. And that's all going into effect over a number of years. What's what's coming up the session around that stuff? Well, we did such a big bill last year that I think we're just letting that child care early learning bill get implemented. And it's going to have some really positive effects. But at the federal level, there's a lot of movement. And right. Senator Patty Murray is a huge uh, champion for this. And so we're waiting to see what passes at the federal level. Because with such a, a robust program, we're one of the, a really good state in early learning and childcare. Um, and then if we can overlay with the investments we just made, overlay federal investments as well, it should really help. And look, we've got a labor market problem right now. And we're Absolutely. hearing from lots of people that it's it's because of the cost and availability of childcare. Um, and so we've got to do this both to sort of change the trajectory of children's lives for the long term, but also to help our economy today. And it's not an excuse for uh, employers not paying, you know, living wages, but it does help if you're, you have to make the decision to like, well, I make two grand a month and childcare is $2,300 a month. I'm obviously not going to go back to work because I'm going to take care of my kid. And that's actually the really strident market conservatives are always calling, you know, poor people dumb. That's actually the smartest economic decision you can make. If your childcare is so expensive that it's more than you're making, why would you go back to work? Yep. And, or you, yay, you qualify. We hear this from people, you know, I qualified for the state program. And then you call around to the 49 providers on the list and not one of them has a spot available right, right. because we're not reimbursing at a high enough rate or, you know, other places for whatever reason. And so that's, we've tried to address that as well. Uh, that's interesting. I don't know if this exactly connects to prosperity, but it's something I've been hearing a lot and I wanted to talk to you about, and it certainly connects to economic security as people age. I'm hearing a lot of people kind of confused and wanting exemptions from the long-term care insurance that you guys just passed last session, I believe. And it, this is among my limited sample. Like this is a, this is a, not an, a scientific sample, but generally reasonable young people, conservatives, but also people I would think are pretty liberal. It's, they're confused by it. They don't think they need it because they're too young. They say it wasn't well messaged. They said it kind of snuck up on them. So how do you respond to that? And also maybe just like talk about why you guys did it in the first place. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad you asked about that. So first of all, we passed it in 2019. Okay. We made a small adjustment last year, but okay. it was originally passed in 2019, which I get it, not everybody was aware that it happened at sure. that time. 
And it may have not seemed like it was relevant because it wasn't going to get implemented for a couple of years. Let me just first tell you what the original premise was. And this okay. was originally a conservative idea. This came from the Republicans. Gotcha. To say, we are investing so much of our general fund in paying for people's long-term care. Because if you go into long-term care, you either start poor or you end up poor right. and you draw on Medicaid. And Medicaid is a state program. It's partially federally funded, but it's all it's largely funded by states. Exactly. So the idea was, let's have people in, put money away for their long-term care. Now, you could say, well, we're going to do that through the private market. But the private market really, over the last couple of decades, has failed. So people that paid in for years and the, the insurance company just goes out of business uh, or right. they're paying for these long-term care programs and the insurer says, um, hey, our estimates were off. We're going to have to double your rates and then people can't pay and they lose it. So right. it wasn't really an option to say, hey, just go out and get private insurance because that, 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 that wouldn't be good advice, uh, at least uh, in the past. So the idea was let's create a state program. And we take a small piece out of everybody's paycheck, and then and then you have a benefit at the end. And it's not a benefit that's going to pay for you to be in a nursing home for the next five years, but it's really designed to keep you in your home for an extra year or two. Now, it could be used for a nursing home. It just won't go that far. But it's really designed, it was the average amount that people pay for long-term care and stay in your home. Now, that's the premise, and it was this sort of conservative idea that then also Democrats said, well, this is a good way to help people. This is another yeah. safety net that we're doing for right. people. In the end, the Republicans sort of failed and it ended up becoming a, more of a Democratic plan. Although there were some Republicans that supported it. But it, fast forward to now. Yeah. Um, it's being implemented. It's being implemented. And I'd say that there are a number of problems. I think some of the concerns that we're hearing are very legitimate and that we have to take them seriously. The first is there was a messaging problem. So nobody knew what was happening. And so they're hearing bits and pieces. And we know that's not a great way for people to learn about anything. And then, so that was part of the problem. But there are some real structural concerns where people say, if I'm going to live out of state and work in Washington, or right. um, I'm within two years of retirement, I got to pay in for two years, but I really don't have any hope of ever using this benefit. So we're looking, we've heard the concerns, they're legitimate, or at least some of the concerns are legitimate. And we are looking at options, either adjustments or even potentially a delay of implementation so we can make a, a broader overhaul. Gotcha. And just to be clear, because like the, the the one argument, because I mostly hang around with young people, even though I'm increasingly not a young person anymore, maybe I need to reevaluate my life choices. A lot of them are like, I'm young. It, kind of the same arguments you heard about Obamacare when it was getting implemented. It's like, I'm young. Why do I need this care? I think the answer you're going to give me, uh, and, and feel free to add any detail that you want, is like, well, you need young people to pay into it so that by the time they're old, because it's not very much money, it's only a small amount of money per month, then it's like funded for them when they leave. And and conceivably, it's kind of like social security where the current generation is kind of funding the next generation once it gets up to speed and gets gets fully funded. That's exactly right. I think social security is a great comparison to say this is a, a program that is for the common good. And yes, you may in the end of your 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 life, you may contribute thirty thousand, and you may only get twenty eight thousand dollars out of this program. But we're going to do that, and somebody else is going to pay a little bit less. But we're all going to be in this together. And it's really this sort of idea of us all working. It's really the idea of government, which is us all sort of working together for our common good. Right. 
And then if that conceivably, and again, this is the sort of stuff that like you need sort of group action to take to ameliorate the individual sort of pains of getting old or just, you know, having roads, stuff like that, stuff that, you know, no entity but government has ever been able to do is like, maybe you're not using the full, that full credit, but the Medicaid system is more robust and you're poor and you have cancer when you're 30. Like then there's like, you know, there's ideally this would be like an envelope to use a, reuse a term in a slightly different way that we already did to like take care of everybody's needs in a different way, regardless of what they are. Yeah. And you can think about it even broadly, just to say, even though I'm never going to need the long-term care, I'm never going to need the the medic, I'm not going to need Medicaid at all, but you know, higher ed support is really important to me. And there's just going to be more state funding available for those other things, or my taxes aren't going to go up as much later. And look, we all pay for things in taxes that we don't use. There's lots of people that don't have kids that pay for schools through property bonds and levies. Um, Now I get it. A payroll tax is a little more personal. And so it feels different. It is different, but it's not unheard of that we pay taxes for things that we don't specifically use for ourselves, but are better for our, our community. Overall. I mean, I've been paying unemployment insurance my, almost my entire like adult life. And I've only been laid off a total of like three weeks, maybe, you know? So that's, that's a really good example where a lot of people, as if yes. the, if the market's doing well, you might never use your, un, the, the unemployment taxes coming out of your paycheck. And could you think about what would happen if we said, there's not going to be a state program for unemployment tax, just go get a private policy if you're concerned about that. And then we have a pandemic and all right. of a sudden we have 2 million people that are out of work. And if we didn't have that program, we would have been in some really tough shape. The overall philosophy that I have about this is like, what do we want the market to take care of? What am I absolutely terrified to let the market take care of? It's anything to do with my health, to be honest. Like, what if I get to 55 and I've been paying into this private thing my whole life and they're like, oh, sorry, premiums are doubled. You choose not to do that. Then you just lose the coverage like that. That's terrifying to me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I generally think, I mean, we do have a capitalist system, like it or not, that is the system we have. I think the market solutions, you know, should be where we look. And this is a case where it absolutely has failed. And it's, that's a good reason for the state to uh, step in and try to find a solution. And the word socialism gets thrown around a lot, especially in our national discourse, but increasingly our local discourse. We still have an overwhelmingly capitalist system, even if we sort of make certain decisions about certain aspects of our lives that are not like purely market driven. Yeah. And for the things that aren't purely uh, capitalist, it's usually a really efficient and much more affordable situation for us to do it in a collective or if you want to say socialized way because like you said i don't want to have to buy the roads to my house i don't want to have to build the school i don't want to have to pay for the fire department all of those things that we do quote unquote socialized that's just us coming together as a community to to do things that are more affordable and more efficient than if we tried to do them on our own yeah absolutely that was a really good discussion thanks for thanks for uh coming to that open heartedly You wanted to talk about transportation. So what's in the pipeline there? Transportation across the state in almost every way, there is a lot of need. At the same time, transportation revenues are decreasing because we rely mostly on gas taxes and cars are becoming more fuel efficient and people are using less gas. So we have this um, sort of collision, maybe not the right word, talking about transportation, (laughs) um, of, of lower revenue and higher need. And our need is in maintenance and preservation of roads, bridges. Um, we have need for better infrastructure for bike and pedestrians, 
better uh, transit. And we have some really important projects like the crossing of the I-5 bridge over the Columbia River, which is not only important to communities in Washington, but also vital for the whole- Interstate um, commerce. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And international commerce right. in Canada through the United States to, to Mexico. Um, so all of that together has created some, some pressure to do an investment package. Oh, another area that we need uh, that there's a lot of pressure on is culverts which is oh, right. helping to you know, let fish and water pass through a lot of times dammed off or blocked off uh, waterways. Right. And we're actually under a federal court order to do uh, culverts. Oh, I think I remember reading about that, yeah. That's, and that's under the transportation umbrella as well. So we've been working, uh, the, the legislature has had various teams of people working to try to come up with a package that we can pass that will invest and will invest sort of across the board in, in helping, you know, people and really helping everyone. A lot of times over the, you know, look at the past 50 years or past hundred years, it's really been focused on transportation on car and truck right, transportation, right. which look, we're still a car society. We're still going to need good roads, but I think that we are thinking broader now. And with the 2015 uh, transportation package that we passed, it was broader. The U District Bridge, which is something that I worked on particularly, I'm really proud of for yeah. our community. That was part of that package. So, you know, we started to get a little broad when we need to take that next step and make an investment. I don't know that we're going to get there in the short term. We may get there in the 2022 session with a package. What happens if the federal government could help us because we may get some flexible funding and transportation that'll help. But it's definitely something that we need to focus on. And if it doesn't happen in in 2022, it needs to happen in 2023. What would the funding source be for that, if not gas tax, or would it be still be gas tax, but something else? It'd probably be gas tax. It also, there are a number of fee transportation fees that hadn't been raised in a while that we could probably raise, uh, trailer fees and that kind of thing. And then you also could look at potentially using some either one-time transfer of general fund, or there are some proposals, though I don't think there's enough support yet, of um, actually taking some stream saying we're going to take you know uh, half of the sales tax money from electric vehicles and put that in because electric vehicle uh, infrastructure is another uh, priority that needs to get funded ferries is another priority I could go on and on on the transportation priorities yeah no there's a lot of it yeah, yeah. and then the, the the other longer term funding source is vehicle miles traveled okay right and that actually makes a lot of sense but if you're has using a the lot roads, of you should baggage. pay more for them yeah yeah, but it has a lot of baggage attached to it. But I mean, if you really just look at how should we be doing this, that would be the fairest way to do it. The baggage being what? Well, there's there's there are some people who say, well, I don't want government tracking where I'm going. Now, never mind that there's all of these ways to do it without government tracking. Yeah, where Go you do Google it. and Apple do that for you, bro. Yeah, well, <laughs> that too. <laughs> but, you, but there are systems. I was part of a pilot project early on. I was on the, the first task force to look at vehicle miles traveled uh, 10 years ago oh, wow. in Washington. So I was on... Oregon did, uh, they were a little bit ahead of us on this and they did a pilot project and I actually, they had like 12 people in Washington who were part of the Oregon pilot. So I was part of that and I had a little, they called it a dongle, which I was thought was a funny word, but it was a thing you plug in in your car and it didn't track you, but at the end of each day, it downloaded to a satellite right. how many miles you traveled that day. The other baggage is that I think there are some that are concerned that it, it won't be fair to some segment of society, that oh, rural communities will pay more or, you know, it's not going to be fair to electric vehicles or what, what, whoever it may be. Um, you can't bring up transportation without 
expecting me to ask about the North South freeway. So I, I'm sure you expected that coming. Like what's the, what's the status of that? Like, or is it going to happen? Is it done? Is it funded? I don't even know at this point. It's been so long. So in the 2015 package, it was funded, but all of that funding is done based on projections. It says, here's a conservative projection. We're going to be on gas tax revenue. And then with that money, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. That funding now is less. And so some of those projects across the state are going to either have to get delayed or changed and or you know unless we invest more money so it is funded in all of the projections it is in a little bit of danger if we don't do anything on transportation although yeah, right. i feel like it's pretty well protected and the construction is happening right now there's like a 12 year time frame started a couple of years ago to get it done but there's actually some interesting things happening where they're talking about the kind of in east central which remember east central was just totally blown apart by I-90 and right. really unfair. It, as as angry as it makes me when I, I see how that community was torn apart, it makes me even more angry when I drive under Mercer Island. So somehow right. East Central, we have to put a freeway through, but Mercer Island, we can go underneath. But one of the, one of the ideas is as part of the connection uh, is to do a land bridge, which would be sort of not just an overpass or a bike or pedestrian overpass, but sort of a greenway over the freeway, which would be for bikes and pedestrians, but also be especially welcoming and and try uh, in an effort to mitigate and connect the, the community. Yeah. Probably big enough and long enough that it's not a super steep hike up and over. Exactly, exactly. So that's one idea that we're working on. The other thing that I'll mention is one of the reasons that I supported the North Spokane Corridor is because of the impact that it could have on other parts of Spokane, particularly on division. So the, the vision is that if you could get the trucks off of division, then you could make division a much more welcoming, efficient, vibrant corridor. And so one of the projects that's in the current proposed transportation package is bus rapid transit on okay. division. So yeah, you would take one lane in each direction that's just for high, high rapid bus rapid transit. So they, if you wanted to commute to a community at the other end of division, the fastest way to get to downtown would be to take the bus. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get that done. I mean, that's a central piece of the current proposed package. Very cool. I was going to ask about high-speed rail, but actually I think the thing that I want to talk about more is you you mentioned earlier, and you've said this to me in the past, like now that you're the um, the majority leader, you don't actually get a ton of time to work on your own legislation, but you said you personally try to work on one thing every session that you really care about. So what have you figured out what that thing is yet, or you, what are you working on? So I have two bills I'm working on, the, the bill that I mentioned about increasing density, and then another one related to just what we were talking about. There's some land that the Department of Transportation has in East Central that they bought for the connection between I-90 and the North Spokane Corridor. But since they bought that land years ago, sort of there's you know new uh, advancements in design. And so the footprint of the connection has gotten much narrower. So there's a bunch of open land. So we want to use that land for housing or for parks oh, cool. wow. uh, uh, and other you know positive community investments. And so we're working on potentially a bill that would uh, help to facilitate that development of affordable housing in this in this land and really returning it to the use that it had before, which was a bunch of housing right there. Well, on a personal note, my my father-in-law's family home was actually bought by the Department of Transportation for the North Spokane Corridor. And now he doesn't even live in that neighborhood anymore, which is, you know, if I'm being brutally honest, is just like a further attack on that community. Uh, he's a person of color. But if 
if the plan is to then return that back to housing, even if it doesn't impact him, if it can do something to repair the harm that was done to that community, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, that's, I appreciate hearing that. And then one other bill that I had last year that didn't pass was um, about the rules by which the Senate can call itself into special session. And so it's really interesting when everybody was saying, oh, the Senate, the legislature should call itself back into special session. The Constitution says the Senate or the legislature may call itself into special session by whatever rules it sets for itself. But those rules didn't exist in law. They had existed <laughs> at some times in different years in what's called joint rules. And uh, at that time, we didn't have joint rules with the House. And so this bill would put those rules into law. So they're always there, whether or not there are joint rules. And then we would... Um, you know, be able to more efficiently and effectively call ourselves into special session. It's one of those sort of balance between the executive and legislative branch that would help. Oh, interesting. Would you have been able to call yourselves back even if you wanted to back then? Or what, what, so what is this going to practically mean for the legislature? Just there was debate on whether we could call ourselves into special session. Now the reality is, cause the, there are two ways to be in special session, the way that's it's only been done, which is the governor calling the legislature in, gotcha. or the legislature calling itself in, which has never been done. Gotcha. So I think in practice, if all four corners of the legislature had asked the governor to call us into special session, I think he would have done it. In terms of that balance of power, we right. shouldn't have to only rely on the governor doing it. And in fact, just us having the power to do it ourselves will probably get him to do it. So right. he has control of the situation. Yeah. Cause you know, in a, in a time where maybe you have a less copacetic relationship with the governor or a future legislature has a less copacetic relationship with a, with a future governor, you would want to have that control yourself so that you could, it's, it's just a separation of powers thing. That's really interesting. Oh. All right. So the last question I always ask everybody, this has been one of our more hopeful episodes because I feel like y'all have been doing uh, good work over there, but as you look forward, what's giving you hope right now? You know, I've seen a lot of hurt in our community across the state throughout the pandemic, but I've just seen incredible resilience in our state. We've talked about sort of on a broad level about resiliency and, and health of the state, but on an individual level to see people coming out of the pandemic um, and, and in some, a lot of cases thriving, in other cases, surviving, but doing okay and doing better. But to see that adjustment and how it can be for the better, even we were talking about, this is an example I like to use, we were talking about how the labor force has changed and people maybe not coming back to work. Right. In a lot of cases, it's really good. People yeah. stayed home. They had one parent working you know, and one parent staying home and they come back and say, well, if I go back to work and after we pay the childcare and everything else, we're not going to make that much money and our quality of life was so much better. Yeah. And so I have a lot of hope about this like shock to the system that we had and how it, for all of the pain, and I don't think we would have ever wished it right. on ourselves, but that we are actually seeing this shift and in some ways, acceleration of positive trends coming out of the pandemic. And I just want that to continue. And yeah, that gives me hope. That's really awesome, man. I think that's all I had. Andy Billick, thank you so much for coming on Range. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. 
Another big thanks to Senator Billig. Good luck with the next 60 days. Uh, a lot of work to do, not a lot of time to do it. And it's vitally important, um, I guess, to do what we can at the state level, since it seems like there's so much dysfunction, as always, at the national level. People really need help right now. And uh, it's not going to come from the federal government, at least not in the current climate. So everything the legislature does uh, is vital. But yeah, make sure to stretch, get plenty of fluids, get a good night's sleep. Uh, the next 60 days are going to be intense. Whew. You sure got to climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Thanks to the stalwart crew, Brennan Pointer for recording the interview, Connor Bacon for editing it, and Kayla Brook for the logistical support. And you know what? Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. I decided my New Year's resolution is gratitude. Sounds a little corny. Sounds like I might have read that in a Goop article, but I mean it. Uh, gratitude is what I'm going to work on this year. And I feel really grateful to everybody who tunes in. Big things coming in 2022. Stay tuned. But for now, I'm going to go take that COVID test. <sighs> have a great week, everyone. Bye. <laughs>